It's time to talk about robots again. In fact, it's always time to talk about robots. Seriously, robots aren't as far away in the future as many people think. And as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, at least I've discussed, <laughs> you're listening, I'm not focused on the dystopian and Hollywood fantasies as much as that would be a lot of fun. In fact, in thinking about it, I will talk about those subjects, war fighting bots and the like, uh, in a future podcast. For now, uh, I want to focus on two things we do know about the future and both facts that are uh, immutable facts point to the need for more, many more robots and very different kinds of robots than are currently available, but will soon be available. What I'm talking about when I say two facts we know, we know that even as economies everywhere, but especially in the Western world, increasingly are digitalized, to use that new term, and become ever more sort of service and software centric. Demand still increases for the kinds of things that are produced by the uh, hard industries. And I'm putting air quotes around hard. That reality was made pretty clear during the, uh, the ridiculous uh, disruptive lockdowns. I mean, miners are still needed to access minerals to supply the stuff man manufacturers need that in turn fabricate all the physical stuff uh, that the world needs from computer chips to medical devices and from fertilizers to pharmaceuticals. Every bit of that's critical for creating and operating the services that make modern life possible. So whether you're making trucks to deliver stuff, uh, whether you're manufacturing fertilizers and tractors to grow food or manufacturing sh ships and trains to carry it, or food processing plants to turn the raw food into stuff we'd want to actually eat, everything, everything that matters in life starts with something that's in the hard industries, things that are manufactured, things that are manufactured by people with skills. So the other thing we know is that demography is destiny. You know, that's a famous line that no one knows who really first said it, even though a lot of people claim it. So demography is destiny. What do I mean by that as a second fact? Well, the world in general, in the United States and Europe in particular, uh, are getting older. I mean, the average age of the population is rising. This is not news. But what's important, and some people do know this, is that the average age of the skilled workforce, the average age of those in the so-called skilled trades and the hard industries, that average age is far higher than the population at large already. In fact, it's almost it's almost a 50-year-old average age in the skilled trades in the United States. So that means in the future, there are going to be fewer people with the skills needed in the hard industries in precisely the industries that are needed to produce the increased supply of goods that the world will continue to need. So there's only a few options to ensure a sufficient supply of the skilled labor that you need for all those hard industries. I mean, the primary option, at least it has been so far, has been to find those people and those hard industries elsewhere. You know, the de facto policy of increasingly importing goods from other younger nations that are willing to host the hard industries. That option pretty obviously has its own geopolitical and economic challenges. Setting aside those challenges, it's likely to face constraints now that many policymakers are uh, embracing reshoring in initiatives. That is, they want the manufacturing industries to increasingly be here. You know, 
hence the CHIPS Act, which I talked about at the end of last year in one of my podcasts. So there's another option, of course, uh, to deal with a uh, shortage of a young labor pool, import import young labor. <laughs> so, uh, so you don't export the, the industries, you import the labor. Well, set aside the politics of immigration. Uh, it takes a, whatever form uh, that of the immigration, whether it's legal or illegal, setting that aside, it takes still takes a long time for any uh, rising generation to develop the necessary skills and experience. It's, it's assuming that even if the people were targeting to get them skilled up, whether they're natives or immigrants, it's assuming they have the requisite interests in the first place. So that brings us to the third option to find skilled labor for the hard industries. And that's to amplify the effect of this of those people with skills, no matter what their age is. It's another way of saying industrial automation. Industrial automation is not exactly a new idea. It's one of the oldest ideas uh, for amplifying labor uh, in all of history. In fact, it's been what has characterized, as you know, the great expansion of the last two centuries, a so-called industrial revolution. It's been characterized not just by industrialization, but in particular by the increasing automation of all aspects of the industrial sectors. I mean, the whole point of automation is to get more output per, per unit of human labor and to free up that human labor for upskilling, for higher skilled tasks, tasks that the automation can't do well or at all. Uh, this is another way of saying increasing the productivity of the, of the skilled of a skilled person, uh, getting the task done, the hard task done faster, safer, and ideally less expensively. And it would be less expensive if the machine is cheap enough and even if the labor is more expensive because, again, you get more output for less input, lowers costs, and you it's a win-win. You get more of the, the, the hard goods, if you like, whether it's a mined material or the thing fabricated from it, and you get it at lower cost. So that's where automation comes in. However, contrary to the popular narrative, uh, there's a lot less automation across industries than most people imagine, especially when it comes to robots, which of course is the apotheosis of automation. Some recent surveys reveal some fascinating data that uh, are not widely recognized. There are no industrial robots, none, zero, in over 90% of America's manufacturing enterprises. Let me restate that. At a survey of the manufacturing industry of America, the manufacturing industries, we find that 90% of America's manufacturing enterprises don't have a single industrial robot. Yeah, I know there's lots of robots, industrial robots in the world. There's millions of them, in fact. But the majority of them are found in this minority of businesses, and they are performing a small minority of the universe of tasks that are done in industry. Uh, in fact, if we measure the survey for firms of significant size, so so-called mid-sized firms, you know, at least 500 employees, only about half of those have at least one industrial robot or use them at all. But the robot population in the industrial world is found mainly in the big businesses that produce large quantities of similar products, especially automobiles. So as the size of the firm shrinks, as it as it becomes uh, more specialized, if you like, and, pr and producing a smaller quantities of goods. And as the variety of tasks increases, the number of robots, industrial robots being used shrinks, it shrinks very rapidly. So there's, re there's a reason for that. Uh, the skilled workforce uh, is just still far better at doing the work than most robots are 
for most tasks. We know automation matters. I mean, so we have data, we have industrial robots, we have millions of them. And again, they're they're concentrated in the biggest industries. Uh, we use them, that is the companies that buy robots, buy those robots because it increases the output per employee that they have to pay. Uh, it's intuitively obvious that that ought, to, that ought to show up in the data. In fact, it does. And it tells you a lot about the future and it tells you a lot about the present. 50 years ago, this is an important uh, sort of framing. So again, first fact is 90% of manufacturing firms of all, of course, this is all sizes, don't have a single industrial robot, but yet there's millions of industrial robots. They're entirely concentrated, but differently. 90 plus percent of all industrial robots are in about 10% of firms, which are the biggest firms. And the biggest firms, uh, it's worth pointing out, employ under half of the total industrial workforce. More than half the industrial workforce is in small firms. That's a calibration point for what we're talking about. So I'll take a, take, I'll take a look at another data set. 50 years ago, the largest firms that have economies of scale, and they do have economies of scale by definition, uh, the largest firms 50 years ago had about a 25% greater output per employee compared to small firms. So their economies of scale bought them something, not nothing, right? That's why they're able to produce uh, high volume goods uh, somewhat cheaper than the smaller firms, because again, the largest firms produced 25% more output per employee 50 years ago. But today, the largest firms produced almost twice as much output per employee as the smallest firms. And that's because they have embraced industrial automation, industrial robots. That's what's happened. So that gap tells you something about what the larger firms were able to pay. They're able to pay more because they get more output per employee. The gap also tells you inversely that we've got a problem because there aren't going to be enough people for the large and small firms. And this schism is particularly important because the large firms depend on the small firms. The Every large manufacturer, every large industry de depends on a wide penumbra of small firms to supply all kinds of uh, services and components. So why haven't there been more robots in, in in industry? Well, robots haven't been good enough. That's the that's the short answer. They haven't been good enough to deploy widely. Industrial robots, mainly uh, so far, are useful in a fixed location, performing a kind of fixed task that's repetitive and high volume. That's again, that's again perfectly suited to very large firms producing the kind of mass-produced things like automobiles, but not very well suited to the suppliers to the automobile manufacturers that each produce much smaller volumes of things. And of course, the other thing that matters is, is cost. Uh, robots have been uh, too expensive for small firms. And most critically, uh, back to the nature of the robots that are showing up in industrial firms today, they are limited in the task. They do a single task repetitively. They do it well, they do it fast, and they can do it cheaper than a person, but it's a single task. In order to be useful in most industries, what a robot needs to have is a feature that humans have, is it must be able to be retrained easily to do another task. And it, it is another feature that most industrial robots don't have. It has to be able to work safely alongside human beings. Uh, we have to teach people to play well with others. <laughs> we have to teach robots to play well with others. And in most of the industrial world where industrial robots are, they are not only literally bolted down or on tracks, but they're typically isolated from people. 
that's going to change and that's what's changing and that's what's that's what's both promising uh for those who are interested in investing in, in robots it's also what's promising for the labor force what's changing is the arrival of anthropomorphic robots robots with skills robots that are tethered don't have to be bolted down robots that can preambulate if you like or roll around uh in the same environment as people and do it safely. That class of robot is no longer fiction. And that class of robot is now emerging uh, in the marketplace. And it's been a long time coming. Let's, let's, um, before we talk more about what's what's actually happening and what what kind of robots now exist, it's, it's worth a, a brief digression into history because it tells you a lot about our present. I mean, it's not a new thing that engineers have been designing industrial automation and especially robots i mean it's been we've been we've been we've been automating by we i mean society have been automating uh industrial systems with controls for literally centuries a, a good example a simple example of automation where this all this kind of thing begins was imagine a tank with a liquid uh, you know, people have to fill the liquid up there's a pipe that brings a liquid in whatever the liquid is and you'd have a human being standing there holding a, a, a hand on a valve and looking at the the tank, when it's full, turn the valve off. Automating that task uh, happened a long time ago. You know, it's very relatively easy thing to have a float valve that rises as the tank fills with the liquid, and that that float valve is attached to an, a uh, a valve that shuts off the liquid flowing into the pipe. It just says flips a lever, just mechanically. Doesn't sound uh, very complicated. Uh, in fact, things like that were invented 2,000 years ago by Hero of Alexandria in uh, at the uh, at the time of uh, at the time of Christ. Uh, lit literally, uh, one of the oldest forms of automation known to man. Uh, Hero of Alexandria also built automatic doors, by the way, and powered by compressed air and running water. He even uh, invented a, a coin-operated drink dispenser. Uh, you know, the first uh, first vending machines. We're, we're talking about. Remember the Roman Empire here uh, in the year 50 AD. He also invented animated puppets. Uh, if you haven't read uh, the book, you can still get it, uh, by the way, because the uh, it's been translated and printed many times. Um, Hero, the Hero of Alexandria's a book on automation published in 50 AD is a list of the kinds of things that he designed and built. Automatons. But when we mean robot, we talk about industrial automation. We... We don't mean a float valve. We don't mean a washing machine because a washing machine, an automatic washing machine is technically a washing robot because it's bolted down to your floor, so to speak, or fixed. Uh, what we mean by robot, what everybody has in their head when we say the word robot is, of course, what the Greeks imagined was a robot again, you know, 2000 years ago. It's a, you know, it's a man-like machine made out of metal. In fact, the... Uh, the Hollywood movie that uh, dates back to the, uh, I think, 30s or 40s, I've forgotten, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, was based on a, a Greek myth uh, of a, a giant uh, bronze robot called Talos. Uh, the Greeks imagined uh, walking animatronic machines 2,000 plus years ago. In fact, uh, Karl Kopek, the, uh, the, the famous, at least in the robot world, Czech playwright, wrote the play in 1920, you know, Rossum's Universal Robots, where he he coined the word robot. He created the word robot from the Czech word robata, which uh, translates sort of loosely to mean forced labor or drudgery. 
you can imagine what, what he was thinking, of course, was the obvious that machines that could walk like humans could replace the drudgery of hard labor. Of course, he was right. He was just a little bit ahead of his time by a century or so. Anyway, the word word is used pretty elastically these days to describe everything from pick and place machines on production lines to, as I said, the, to the clothes washing machine in your in your in your uh, in your house. And, but we, what we mean by robot and the machine that will be truly useful and democratize industrial automation is the ambulatory machine that's not tethered, the anthropomorphic robot, not necessarily exactly human like in appearance. But it could be, uh, or dog-like in appearance, or mobile, or quasi-human-like, but anthropomorphic in the broadest sense. In fact, this idea of the walking robot didn't just go back to the Greek times. 1939 World's Fair, uh, Westinghouse built a robot that walked around the World's Fair, uh, and they were able to build a robot using their uh, switchgear, automated switchgear that they had designed for the electric grid, and they wanted to you know, brag about this switchgear. And and they put a recording inside the robot. Robot. The only thing you could do is sort of walk around stiffly, and uh, and blare through its uh, speaker. My brain is bigger than yours. Uh, just kind of a cute stunt. And then, uh, with some degree of irony, for the uh, World's Fair in uh, nineteen uh, in nineteen uh, in nineteen fifty, the uh, famous science fiction writer sorry, 1964 World's Fair, the famous science fiction writer Isaac Asimov was asked to forecast what the world would be like in 2014. And of course, remember, he wrote the iconic robot book series called iRobot, uh, which was made into a cheesy science fiction movie, but I, I digress. So he was asked to forecast what he thought the world would look like. And among the many forecasts he made in this essay in 1964, about the year 2014, he said that robots by that time, by 2014, 50 years after that World's Fair, uh, wouldn't be common. They would exist, and they wouldn't be very good, but, they, but they'd be around. Asimov nailed it. They, they, they aren't very common, but they do exist. There are anthropomorphic robots now. In fact, for those of you who follow this, you've dealt with seeing the YouTube videos of the human-like Atlas robot from Boston Dynamics. It does all the stunts. Uh, it's the the classic definition of a true automaton, a true anthropomorphic robot. Uh, it does backflips. It can run on complicated uh, surfaces. It can open doors, dance. Uh, it's really quite quite a tour de force, but it's it's a pure uh, demonstrator so far. Uh, rumor has it it costs at least they cost at least a million dollars each, which makes it a little a little too expensive <laughs> to say the least. But it's a real robot. It's not a a one-shot stunt. It's actually a robot that really works. So Atlas, uh, this robot that Boston Dynamics make uh, makes called Atlas, came out of a uh, contest that DARPA ran, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, that the, the Pentagon's uh, sort of public skunk works. They ran a contest in 2015 for engineers to deliver a robot that was anthropomorphic. It could use wheels and hands and legs or any combination, but it had to be, it had to be autonomous and, and untethered, it had to be uh, not connected to a track or a cord. And it had to do a, a simple set of tasks to win the contest. Walk up a try up in a vehicle, walk up a set of stairs, open a door, turn a valve, that kind of thing. 
uh, a few robots were able to do that. These are these are the kind of tasks that are inherent, if you like, to operating usefully in, in a typical human industrial environment. All of those sort of simple tasks, walk up a set of stairs, open a door, turn a valve, were impossible for any uh, autonomous robot to do up until 2015. So a mere, you know, eight years ago, the Rubicon was crossed, if you like. And then in early 2020, Boston Dynamics took that technology and, and offered for commercial sale. It's a dog-like anthropomorphic robot. I use the word anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic loosely, uh, called Spot Mini. Uh, the base price for Spot Mini, it's commercially for sale to industries. I think uh, it's, it's certainly not for sale to consumers, although I guess in principle, <laughs> If you could get your hands on one. Uh, base price of uh, about $75,000, uh, which sounds like a lot of money, except as a as a useful calibration, uh, the pivot in history for the first automobile, that is 1896, a company called Durea in the United States, a Durea wagon, uh, it, in, in inflation-adjusted dollars uh, was $80,000. So, about the same. It's kind of interesting. So the very first car uh, cost for sale was about the same price in real terms as the very first commercial untethered anthropomorphic robot that you could you can buy for a business. So a spot mini can walk, it can run, it get it can get up after it falls down, it can open doors, it fetch objects. But its principal use in industry, and it is being used. There are, I believe, dozens now in use, not hundreds or thousands yet, but it could be hundreds by now. Uh, but it's small numbers, but it's it's being used primarily for roaming safety surveillance at construction sites and farms and offshore oil platforms and some factories, uh, Ford factories, pharmaceutical factories. So one of the most critical services you have in any of the hard industries is keeping things safe. And to keep things safe, you have to have human beings walk around, uh, look at things, uh, observe things, report back uh, uh, p- potential hazards. Uh, this, if you're walking around looking for you know cracks in pipes, looking for things lying where they don't belong, this is not exactly a super high skill task, but it's a particularly critical task, and it's also often a very boring task. So it makes it subject to human error. A robot doing that. Um, up, releases the person from the boring task that can be upskilled to do to do more difficult tasks. And of course, the robot doesn't get bored. And of course, that is one of the one of the first applications for for spot mini. It's you know it's a pretty pretty remarkable. It's freeing up people to do tasks that makes them available for not only higher skills but higher pay. There's at least two dozen companies today to come back to the future not just Boston Dynamics. There's at least two dozen companies today that are designing and building pre-commercial anthropomorphic robots. Some of them are startup companies, um, very small. Some of them are you know, big private companies, relatively big, so to speak, like Boston Dynamics, which is incidentally owned by Hyundai. Hyundai, Hyundai bought it from um, PeopleSoft and uh, PeopleSoft had bought, had bought the uh, company uh, itself uh, some years ago. But the industrial giants are also making robots, companies companies like uh, Toyota, and uh, maybe most famously, uh, Tesla. Elon Musk last year held, held a press conference, some of you might have, uh, have seen or been aware of, to announce that uh, Tesla was in the process of uh, designing and prototyping 
a anthropomorphic uh, walking robot opt- called Optimus that they plan to commercialize and sell. Uh, this is a pretty big deal. Uh, if whether you're a uh, Elon Musk fan or you're not an Elon Musk fan, uh, it's let's just say that it's consequential when someone with with uh, the skills and uh, fortitude, <laughs> maybe one way to put it, and appetite for engaging in manufacturing in hard industries like space travel and electric vehicles and solar panels and batteries and all the rest, something like that. And Elon Musk decides to build a robot. In fact. Uh, it's worth pointing out what Elon Musk said about his robot and robots in general, because I think he has it exactly right. The last year, at the end of the year, there was one of many conferences where, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. There was a conference where he, I was going to say he was showed up at many conferences. It was, like, it was a conference, an investor conference, where he, he agreed to be on stage. It was the Barron's uh, annual investor conference and um, talk about his company and answer questions. And one of the questions that was put to him in the Q and A period was uh, from a friend of mine, Mark Skousen, who uh, asked uh, Elon Musk why anybody should invest in Tesla, given that uh, Mercedes-Benz also makes a very fine electric vehicle and trades at a fraction of a multiple of Tesla, and it still does despite the the drop in Tesla's prices. <clears throat> What's interesting in Elon Musk's answer to that question was he he didn't say anything about electric vehicles at all as a reason to invest in Tesla. He gave as a reason to invest in Tesla, just two features of that company. One was the fact that they have a pioneered autonomy for vehicles. And in his words, and I quote, autonomy is an insanely fundamental breakthrough, quote, unquote. Well, he's right. Uh, And I think, well, he might not admit it, publicly, their vehicles are not fully autonomous yet. Well, I think he has said that. They're not fully autonomous yet. They're quasi-autonomous. But he pointed out that it's autonomy that matters the most in terms of changing the functionality of a vehicle. And that's a big deal. And I agree. We'll talk more about autonomous vehicles another time. But he didn't say anything about how the vehicle is powered. He just talked about the fact of it being autonomous. And I agree. The fact of autonomy is a is a difference of consequence for a vehicle. The fact of how it's fueled uh, is a difference of consequence re- re- uh, equivalent to changing how you feed a horse. It's still a horse. How you feed a car, it's still a car. It's not a revolution in the same sense. But having the car autonomous is. Anyway, the second thing that uh, Musk said about why one should consider investing in this company, thing that differentiated them was about the robot. In fact, let me let me quote exactly what he said. He said, then there's also the Optimus program, which is our humanoid robot, which our manufacturing expertise in the intelligence we've developed for self-driving to have a use, useful humanoid robot gives them that advantage. He also said, and this is, Coming back to where I began this uh, this episode, and I quote again, the economy is fundamentally GDP per capita times capita. If you no longer have a, co- a constraint on capita because of useful humanoid robots, it's not clear there's any limit to the size of the economy. And these things will actually happen. So I agree with them, in quote, by the way. I agree with them. Uh, they're not they will actually happen. They are actually happening. <laughs> there are, as I said, uh, he... He he has had Tesla join uh, at least two dozen other companies, at least two dozen other companies that are at various stages of producing anthropomorphic, untethered robots that will have and have the capacity to uh, 
to operate and work in human environments, which is critical. It's much more important to have the machine adapt to us rather than have to force us to adapt to the machine. And as, just as with the automobile, the, the, the true robot, the fact that we're, we're on the cusp of having a, a true robot commercially uh, is made possible not just by sort of one thing. It's the confluence of technologies that have come of age. You know, the, the car age happened and it launched uh, because of the independent maturation of a set of other technologies that were critical to make cars possible. Principally, for example, high-strength steel, of course, the invention of the internal combustion engine and oil refining. For robots, it's the arrival of powerful micromotors and vision chips, if you like, enabled by artificial intelligence, and of course, lithium batteries. So the advances uh, in the uh, sort of the vision chips, the suites of set by vision, I, I don't just mean cameras, but all the suite of, the suite of sensors that give uh, machines, particularly robots, the ability to know where they are and where they're going. This is literally vision chips, cameras, as well as uh, accelerometers and the GPS. I mean, these, these tiny um, powerful cameras that are uh, now chip scale combined with chip scale radar and of course chip scale uh, LIDAR, this is laser, essentially laser radar, along with uh, microscopic silicon chip scale accelerometers or position sensors, that, that whole suite of, of motion and location and navigation detection are profoundly revolutionary, but it took the suite of them together to make possible the kind of uh, navigation that humans uh, engage in that is precise, natural, safe, <laughs> and uh, and cheap. And of course, the, uh, the tetherless uh, part of robots was made possible by the lithium battery. The no question that the uh, four to five hundred percent increase in energy density of a lithium battery over a lead acid battery is not only what made the electric car possible and useful, but far more, far more consequential. Makes possible things like autonomous robots. But similarly, we needed to have the, the robot have muscles that were useful. This, like humans, right? it has to have actuators. It has to be able to uh, lift things, not just move itself and carry things. And especially in the especially in the hard hard industries and the heavy industries, you want to in one of the most important places we want robots to to work alongside people is in precisely those things that uh, cause injury in people. We want to minimize injury strain for humans. We want the robots to do the heavy lifting, which means they have to have very powerful actuators. It turns out that was not that easy. What if there's a stealth revolution in uh, in micromotors that it doesn't get any publicity, but the engineers have done some remarkable things. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the power to weight ratio of electric motors has increased 50 fold in the last 30 years. This is really quite remarkable. Would that put differently? It means that I can make the motor 50 times smaller, right? To have the same power, or I can have the one pound motor be 50 times, 50 times uh, more powerful than, than it used to be. Or from a robot perspective, it means I don't have to have a 50 pound motor to give the robot power to lift the weight. I can do it with a one pound motor. This is beyond obvious, truly consequential. One of the inventions, by the way, that made that possible, it's not the only one, was the development of neodymium supermagnets in the mid 80s. It was a an invention that led to the more powerful motors and generators. It's also the invention that makes possible, by the way, 
the uh, far more efficient and more powerful wind turbines that we see scattered across the landscape these days. So motors uh, matter. It's not just the motors, but the the whole uh, penumbra of other parts of the actuators that are used, the grabbers, uh, which come from the advances in material science. They have to be pliable, basically replicate the, the pliable flexibility and firmness of what we do when we grab something with our hands. Well, the advances in polymer chemistry and polymer science have brought us the ability to make sort of gecko-like grippers that uh, robots can have to do things as delicate as pick up an egg or pick a raspberry off a vine. And in both cases, there are robots that can do that commercially now, uh, as well as pick up, you know, a hundred pound uh, heavy object or something that's that's uh, hot that we don't want or, or dangerous that we don't want people near. Both, both can now be done by robots with practical uh, materials and technologies. So it's... Uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting place where we are. I want mean, to give you an example of of uh, what's called biomimicry, and is an indication of how far the power capabilities of robots have come since we imagined them as you know slow walking, clunky nineteen uh, fifty science fiction machines. Uh, one of the ways you can uh, make a comparison is to take a look at the robots that have been built. Uh, again, these are not commercial, these are pre-commercial, to uh, mimic uh, animals. Uh, Boston Dynamics, again, and there are others that have done the similar thing, have built uh, quadrupeds designed to run quickly. And in, in fact, we now have we now have a number of companies that have been able to build uh, quadrupeds that can uh, can run as fast as a cheetah, uh, which is the fastest, fastest, the fastest uh, four-legged animal that uh, nature has. So these these are these are consequential uh, pivots in uh, technology progress. And just like all the other technologies, once once you're at the pivot point, then you know the pivot point being we've, we've achieved a goal, um, a metric that's critical with technologies that are real, that are viable, materials that can be produced at scale. Once you've reached that pivot, then commercialization becomes possible, which is what's happening. Commercialization is now happening with both uh, four-legged and, uh, and and some, very few at the moment, um, two-legged robots and of course wheeled robots. They don't have to walk. Uh, if the if the robot has uh, wheels of the right kind, it can roll around in most human environments, but not all. Uh, to get upstairs, uh, wheels wheels can do that. Wheels with very clever designs that are are pliable, that can expand, have grips. And if you have again, if you haven't seen videos, I invite you to go down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos of robots climbing stairs and going up curbs uh, using wheels instead of legs. So we, where we are at, in the broadest sense is that we're now, we're now at a point in history where the technology has matured, that it's just pre-commercial or just post-commercial. We're at the same point with robots today, roughly speaking, as we were with the automobile since 1901 give or take, you know, the turn of the 19th century. We're not at 1920 yet. There are no Model T robots yet. There will be Model T robots. And it could be that the derivative robots from Spot Mini or Boston Dynamics Atlas or other competitors, it could be. It could be the Elon Musk's Optimus robot will be will be the, uh, the equivalent of the Model T of our era. Uh, and if it happens over the same kind of time frames, and that means we're still... We're still a decade away from the Model T of, of robots, essentially 
if you like, the robot that small businesses uh, could buy, or you might, you might choose to purchase uh, because you, you know you'd like to have a robot helping you out around the farm, your your gentleman farm or your gentleman farm. It's it's a it's an area where we know that this is possible, not fictional, because it's already happening in warehouses, as I've talked about in a previous uh, podcast on the uh, service sector. We see these robots already showing up in the warehouse market, the so-called logistics markets, which have a lot of parallels to the industrial markets, because in the logistics warehouse market, we're physically picking up product, we're moving boxes typically, and goods to put it in boxes, but it's a physical handling task. In fact, last year, um, uh, uh, DHL purchased the entire production run of a new robot, uh, a new robot uh, that can unload its wheeled robot, not walking. And it uses the suction cup kind of hands, not finger kind of hands, but it's a robot uh, called Handle, which can handle boxes. And it's designed to unload uh, semi-trailers uh, instead of people. And the reason that DHL bought the entire production run for, for the year last year of these uh, handle bots is that they uh, achieved a goal. And the goal was that that single robot could unload boxes at the same rate as a human. A human unloads boxes, you know, these are typically 20 to 50 pound boxes from a truck at the rate of about 800 boxes per hour. Uh, Handlebot uh, could do that. It matched that rate. And uh, of course it can work round the clock. It does have to take breaks to charge. Uh, every 16 hours, I believe, is what this particular one has. So it works a 16 hour shift takes a break to charge. If I were guessing, I don't know this for a fact, it's probably probably a one hour, you know, a one hour lunch break to get uh, to feed on electrons and then back to work. Uh, all in, uh, far cheaper than far cheaper than a human. And critically, it frees up the human that was doing the drudgery task of uh, taking boxes off a, a truck so they can be upscaled to do something more useful, like, for example, drive the truck. Because autonomous trucks on highways are going to be much, much harder to, to robotify. So it, the the robot automation market is already a multi billion dollar market in in the uh, in the uh, warehouse industry. It's the untethered robot market in the industrial uh, non warehouse industry is much smaller. It's certainly measured only in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but it's in real money. There's a population of, of robots in the workforce already that's expected to grow by at least 400% at, uh, in the next five years, which I think, frankly, is underestimate. So this, this anthropomorphic robot revolution set aside, the, again, the dystopian parts of it, the entertainment part of it, the rise of the machines, the Terminator stuff, all of which is amusing and fun to talk about. And as I said, I'll talk about... Uh, the dystopian, the dystopian bots in another in another podcast in the future. Maybe I'll get on, get on one of my um, colleagues that join me to talk about it. Uh, a professor, uh, Don Howard, at Northwestern University has thought a lot about anthropomorphic robots, the ethics of them. In fact, I will have them. I'm going to invite them. We'll, we'll get them on to talk about robot ethics and war robots and the ethics of using robots in general, how we deal with them, and how we deal with them in war fighting. So. Um, that'll be a future podcast. But the automation of labor and the entrance of anthropomorphic robots into a workforce is happening. It's no longer the the uh, the dreams of uh, Hero of Alexandria of 2,000 years ago or of Isaac Asimov in iRobot 70 years ago or 
the uh, Hollywood Hollywood versions of this. These are real machines that are emerging, and and I I would I would bet that Tesla will uh, release a viable anthropomorphic robot as a product. Whether they release it on time, uh, we'll see. Uh, I think there's a decent chance they'll get it out in the uh, next couple of years, and that will be that will be a big deal because uh, uh, maybe there's no better promoter of, of autonomous machines than Elon Musk. It'll be a big deal because it'll be interesting. He'll promote it, but it'll be more importantly, it'll be a big deal because it is a multi-purpose robot that will be very useful in the heavy industries, the high-risk industries, the industries where injuries are highest. And we have have now, and we'll have an increasing shortage of labor in these skilled trades. It'll be the kind of machine that those with skills at any age uh, will be to train to upskill themselves, to reduce, to reduce the, if you like, the hassle factor of drudgery and increase the productivity of the businesses that they're employed in. They're labor productivity boosting machines. That's what robots do. And what that means is that our future is far brighter than most people, most of the dystopians write about in terms of the labor force. Uh, technology will 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 solve the problem. Um, it doesn't solve all problems, and it doesn't mean there won't it won't create its own problems. I mean, there's gonna this is what we'll talk about with Don Howard. If you think about this, this truism, um, the invention of the automobile means that you've invented the automobile crash. The invention of the airplane means you've invented the airplane crash, right? There's There are consequences. Machines have to be made reliable and made safe. Doubtless, there's some equivalent uh, of of, the, of a robot crash in our future too. Uh, it, it's just the nature of technology. There are We have gotten better at taking risks out of our technology, but we don't take all risks out of technology. So that may not sound like a very optimistic Actually, it is an optimistic way to look at the future. And, and it is it is the case that uh, we are on the cusp of a remarkable uh, expansion, a new class of automation, the anthropomorphic robot. And it is also the case that uh, it got hyped and then the hype went away. And most people now would sort of put it in the in the box of, gee, it feel, still feels like hype. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to end with a, an apocryphal quote that uh, I'll, I'll credit to, uh, to a Toyota uh robot researcher uh, who said in an interview, and um, uh, her name is Steffi Pepke. She's a senior designer for robot robotics at Toyota's Research Institute. Uh, she was talking about robots in the future. And of course, she, like I, believes that they're coming. In fact, maybe we should try to get Steffi on our, on our podcast in the future to talk about her views. But she said, and I quote, and of course, she she's quoting ostensibly Henry Ford, uh, people, uh, this is apocryphal, but it's it's a great line. She said that Henry Ford said, if the inventors of the automobile had asked people riding horses what they wanted, they would have answered that they just wanted a faster horse. It can be difficult to imagine a future that's vastly different than the status quo, end quote. Uh, to which I say, amen, of course. That's the challenge. Uh, the status quo, the dawn of the auto age, uh, was the horse when automobiles showed up? It was pretty obvious to people fairly quickly that it was a big deal. But it took it took a couple decades from the first cars before uh, cars became affordable to everybody. But it only took about a decade uh, from the first car before there were there were millions of them, and in fact, most of the millions of them were 
were used not just by wealthy people, but were, were used uh, in uh, in industry for uh, industrial and commercial purposes and services. The same will be true of the anthropomorphic robot, which is, again, in our very near future, which to remind you, I wrote a lot about in my book, The Cloud Revolution, but us several chapters on robots, anthropomorphic and otherwise. So, let me close uh, by saying that uh, if you, again, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, give us a rating on the platforms you use. We prefer favorable ratings. Who doesn't? <laughs> if you have questions, uh, suggestions, ideas, objections, email me, text me, put it at the uh, at the platforms you're on, and I'll be happy in a future podcast to take up some of the questions and ideas. And until next time, then, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. <laughs>